Before we begin today's episode, a disclaimer of sorts. There are some episodes of Don't Worry About the Government that are presented almost documentary-like. There's concrete details, lots of concrete details, and then a little bit of commentary, and then more concrete details. This is an episode that is much heavier on the commentary side, and also a little bit more fired up than usual. This is something I would define as either a boiling point episode or a pox on all of your houses style of episode. I'm pretty mad at a number of different groups online and in the political sphere. The thought makers um, who are nominally part of the left of center coalition here. I think all of them are doing a pretty shitty job, which isn't new. But I do think when you add this element of the absolute monstrosity that is Jeffrey Epstein, it just, I don't know, it was a straw too much for me. A lot of my anger on this episode, as I go back and listen to it in the editing room, is clearly directed at Nancy Pelosi. It's her weak leadership. It's the fact that we're on this arc that we're on right now for no small reason because of her. And so I think when you're listening to that, just bear that in mind because that's very much what I'm hearing when I'm hearing me fired up. But if you're someone who does not want to have like something intense going on in your ears, if you're in an office where you don't necessarily, I'm not screaming during this episode, but you know, I'm a little agitated and I'm dropping some F-bombs. If that's not what's right for the environment that you're in right now, I feel like you should be at least aware of that. And last but not least, I've never had this come up with this show, but with like my wrestling show, one time it came up that someone thought that Lucha the Hidden Temple is a family show. Now, I'm not telling you don't worry about the government isn't a family show. I What I am telling you, however, is that personally... I don't believe that politics is for children under the age of 16 or 15. That's when I started getting into reading the news and stuff. It was during the Iraq war. You kind of couldn't turn away from it and kind of couldn't not have an opinion on it. But, Lord, if I could keep my kids from having to really think about the news in a deeply political way and just let them be kids, I would. I was really aghast when the mini AOC video came up online. Not because I was, like, upset on behalf of Alexandria ocasio Cortez or something, but I was mortified for this girl that she has such horrible fucking parents that they thought it was a good idea to script up an entire dialogue for this girl to do and then put it on the internet, and they didn't think for two seconds that they were actually endangering their family's safety. So all of that is a long-winded way of saying, if you've got kids in the car, my advice is don't play this episode with the kids in the car. And if you're having kind of a down day or you don't really want to go to sort of an angry place right now, I mean, bro, you don't have to listen to the show. You can you can check out the next one, and the next one's not going to be like this. So I, I want you, one, to have a good day. Um, know that I appreciate when y'all get at me on Twitter and stuff, at Chris Dovenbrino, so feel free to hit me up here. Um, and with all of that said, let's get to the vent session, because there's some people who love the venting. Ladies and gentlemen, hello again and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. It is Tuesday, July 9th, and I am speaking with Brian Halverson. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You were actually in town. We originally had plans of recording a live and in-person Don't Worry About the Government, but then I remembered something very important, which is that I don't want to spend 
every waking fucking moment of my life doing this show, although I devote an inordinate amount of time to writing, producing, and editing this show. And we instead just hung out as humans, which was fun. I had a good time. It was good seeing you in person. Yeah, it's... I, I'm glad we uh, we took that time in that way. Because uh, um, here we are handling that sort of business, you know, that, that we could have otherwise done. But uh, The news cycle also moved sufficiently, I think, since the last time an episode was put out. I, I We're still very much in that post-first round of debate fallout. But now we have a major news story on deck with major political implications, but also societal and social implications. That is, of course, the Epstein story. We'll get to that a little later on, but we have to start off with another thing that is a major news story here. Uh, Last September, you came on and we did a retrospective look at Ross Perot's debate performance in the second presidential campaign debate. And we also took a little bit of a look at the presidential campaign. And then we looked specifically at that debate and everything leading into it. A little bit of a compare and contrast between Ross Perot and Donald Trump. And lo, here we are today. And Ross Perot, at the tender age of 89 years old, is no longer with us, which is sad. I I find myself wistful that Perot, a guy who's basically been out of the public limelight, is gone. And and my personal connection to him is that when I was in first grade, we had a mock election for 1992, right? Uh, I was six years old. I was born in 1986, so 1992. And there were people voting for Clinton and people voting for Bush. But I voted for Ross Perot. And, and you know why? Because he had the big ears. And <laughs> that was the start of me being anti-establishmentarian in an unserious way. But I think perhaps maybe was indicative of something like instead of me asking my parents, are we Democrats or Republicans? I just looked at the candidates and picked one. I wasn't trying to get my political opinion from someone else, which is the most common way, of course, we get our political opinions. So anyways, at least for me, I just want to say rest in peace, Ross Pro. And I know you've got some thoughts as well. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Dallas. Uh, I, I spent most of my childhood in, in, in Dallas and in North Carolina. And um, first of all, just being around there in the 80s and 90s, he had a legendary status because he was known for driving very inexpensive cars. And he, of course, is very easy to spot as an individual, but he was known for driving these like beat up Buicks and uh uh or like an old ford pickup or something and and, and so uh um he was kind of legendary for just sneaking up on people in that way what a contrast he is to these like live out loud douchebag billionaires that we have now and i'm not necessarily saying like this is the world's greatest industrialist or anything but there was this point in time where even the rich guys had at least some sense of modesty and that's completely gone yeah, yeah. He was also known for some, these isms of like, uh, he he would have a, a a routine snack habit of like saltine crackers and a glass of milk or something, uh, uh, and uh, he was just a, a very um, simple like. Um, th- there was there was a lot of grassrootsisms about him that 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 never really left his character. 
Because he was really one of the self-made men. Uh, unlike the people who kind of self-style themselves like that, Donald Trump is actually a really great example. He really fancies himself as this guy who built his own empire. And the more and more we found out about Trump, the more we know that it was all just given to him by daddy. Well, and all it- just kind of guided. Whereas Ross Perot literally came from a ranch and worked his way up from being a ranch. He's kind of like LBJ of that generation. Oh, a- absolutely. And Chris, I, I'm really curious about your take on this because you, um, you, you have a metric that I want to test here, but because, uh, uh, I, I just saw an, an interview where, uh, uh, Jim Lair ca- came back on to speak about Ross Perot because they, they have, uh, quite a few or quite a long history together um not uh professionally and so uh jim lair came on to talk about like look the the guy that you saw ross perot in the debates that's exactly who he is and and that was not a character um um and he he really believes in in approaching politics that way uh and that wasn't a facade and uh and i know chris you're you're um you and I have, have looked at enough Ross Perot debates now. How do you scale him on the authentic test? Yeah, I, I figured you were going there. Strong and authentic, I think that is the story of his candidacy. Why did it work? Why were people willing to try something different than the two parties that had been kind of at loggerheads? This whole fantasy of divided government will work really great. Well, it didn't work really great in the late 80s going into the 1990s. And I think what Ross Perot was able to capitalize on is coming in, saying very strongly, sometimes in unsophisticated ways that would leave you scratching your head of, okay, yeah, that sounds great, but what's the plan there, man? Uh, he would come in and say he could do it. You know, I, He would say things like, it'll be like apples just falling off of a tree. And you go, yeah, I don't think it's going to be quite like that. But damn it if he didn't believe it. And that means something. And that works for a lot of people. Well, not, not, I, I, I'll cut it short here. But to, to show you the exchange that, that I think Ross Perot was worth just in 1992 alone, here's two moments. First of all, he brought up in 1992 how terrible NAFTA could be. Uh, and that, although that was not a communication that the, that the voters picked up on, um, to look back on that debate and to know that that voice was at least out there saying that, I think that was uh, of, of great value. Uh, it's unfortunate that that value wasn't cashed in. Uh, number two, um, he pointed out, and he's one of the last voices in, in political discourse and debate, where openly in, in the debate, he told the moderator, like, don't cut me off. Is, are we trying to fix this or are we trying to soundbite this? And there has been no one who has been so confrontational with the media on that high of a uh, level as Ross Perot has been. Uh, um, and I don't know until, who Until, of course. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, until, yeah. Uh, well, but there was, there's, there was a different level of, of purity behind, um, how he's really confronting the media at that point. And, and I really, I really believe that, you know, for, for all that you can talk about how he may have changed the election, he had a valid voice in, in, in 1992. Um, and he, uh, probably should have been. Uh, a voice in 1996 as well. 
I'm always curious what would have happened if he uh, wouldn't have yeah. dropped out then. I think he is responsible for Clinton getting elected. However, my big regret from the 1992 race is that he didn't create a scenario that forced the electoral college system to actually really get tested, where things would get thrown to the House and we'd actually see in fullness how dumb the electoral college as a system is. It makes no sense. Because if no one wins the electoral college, then it goes to the House of Representatives. Why is that remotely fair? Why wouldn't it then go to the popular vote? We really need to have this laid out in full relief, and people need to become sufficiently dissatisfied with this structure because it's a busted structure. Well, now, Chris, that's an interesting—I've never considered voting third party in order to further expose the system because the closer you get to breaking it, the more likely they are to fix it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but that's only true if you actually have a credible chance of getting that transaction, right? Like, you wouldn't just go and throw your vote away by voting for Jerry Dingus as a plan to get the transaction of forcing them to address the Electoral College, right? Like, going into the voting booth and voting for Jerry Dingus and then Steve going over here and voting for Tom the winner, uh, that that doesn't do anything. Yeah. Um, so you would need to have a candidate who is actually a strong candidate like a John Anderson or like an H. Ross Perot who actually has the specific targeted transactional goal of forcing this puppy to the House of Representatives. You'd have to believe a lot of ifs there uh-huh. in order to justify that as a third-party vote. Just saying I'm doing this because I think this will finally get America to address things. Dude, I don't know if you've noticed about America. They don't catch on to a lot of stuff. you really got to spell it out for America. Oh, yeah. That's why I'm working on an animation, buddy. What do you get when you grab for a torch? If your arms are too short, then you get a good scorch. I don't like the look of it. That's right, Eric Swalwell. The Oompa Loompas are here for you today. It's the end of the Swalwell candidacy. Who but everyone could have seen this coming? Anything to say about the departing Eric Swalwell? Um, I was curious how gun control was going to be addressed in the debate, especially at a time when the NRA seems especially upside down. Um, I do like that he was at least addressing gun control issues. They are not, it's not necessarily addressing gun control issues in the way that I'd like. I don't want to get into the weeds about that, but I mean, we are very far from the gun control conversation I want to have. We'll just leave it at that. So, um, as far as, uh, his benefit I believe there was some sort of gun control crossover conversation because he used his time in that way. Um, He did get the jab in on Joe Biden. It was a... uh, That was one of the few moments that was actually good for Biden, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, It it, it was an interesting moment. It it caught people. Uh, It made made people laugh, but... uh, it, really it opened up the floodgates, too, <laughs> yeah. for attacking Joe Biden. So I, I think that is something you can remember his candidacy for, because even though his attack didn't work, once he did that, Kamala Harris is like, it's time. If Bernie's not going to go after him, I most certainly will. Well, 
Well, he has a position that he is now running for in the Senate, correct? No, he is running for the House. He actually may be facing a primary challenger. That's oh, kind okay. of a whole different thing. But, yeah, he is a House guy. He says he's going to go back. He has been hardened by this experience, and now he really understands what America needs. Uh, what America needs is leadership change in the Democratic Party, but that's a different discussion. Well, yeah, I'm. It, that's really the, the part of this... Uh, this um, change that I'm always curious about. What is he trying to otherwise win as far as what other type of campaign um, and how how far away is he from being viable as a president um, and how much more limelight is he going to get from getting into the second debate? And then if you get into the second debate and do well in the second debate, how much better does that put you in position for that house he was always swimming upstream right because it's like the kamala harris big cloud in the room is sucking up all of your fundraising ability in the state of california he has no natural constituency outside of the state of california it's not as though he is the parkland kids favorite representative or something like that i I mean i don't think they hate him or anything like that but it's not like you have thousands of photos of him with david hogg or something like that no that that would that would be a much better connection if it was more if it was more cultural than just rhetorical. Uh, and he's um, not even really yeah. aligning himself as a true progressive either. He's not right, someone right, right. who's sidling up with Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Rashida Tlaib or even the more problematic Ilhan Omar. He's not with any of them. Um, so he's really in this no man's land. I, I mean, as a progressive, I don't really view him as a real progressive either. I view him as a, a liberal establishmentarian. Yeah, he's one of those few people that I believe he is kind of to mostly to the right of the Overton window, but he brings up a, a subject that most people aren't going to be harping on. And I don't think that's entirely fair. You know, like he unionized his campaign. I, I think there's enough there to argue he's at least in the center of the party. Yeah, okay. So, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be completely unfair to the guy, although obviously neither one of us like him, but he, he did do things. I mean, the unionizing the campaigns thing, you're going to get big marks from me on that. I, I mean, honestly, if I had known that a little bit of earlier, I probably would have sent him five bucks just on the principle that I want every one of these candidates to be unionizing their campaign. Now, let's talk about Tom Steyer. So, Tom Steyer has decided that he has not wasted enough of his money in stupid ways that are not actually good transactions and is deciding that what America needs is not to impeach Donald Trump, although he spent a ton of money on that and assembled a massive mailing list based on that stupid little website of his that has done nothing thus far. He's decided what America needs is a 62-year-old billionaire who made his money as a hedge fund manager investing in energy companies and a whole bunch of different stuff. So he has this problematic investment resume. And he wants to do that rather than taking his money and using it to lead and rebuild the party in a less Clintonian, less machine politics way. Now, on climate change stuff, I want to give Steyer some credit. He has dumped a non-negligible amount of money into climate change initiatives, and for that, I think it's laudable. 
That's not anywhere near enough of a reason to justify me even remotely supporting your candidacy for president, let alone as president. Where Tom Steyer's place is in the Democratic atmosphere is as a financier. If this is a billionaire who actually wants to do some good in the world... I'm open to hearing that conversation, but we're at a point in time, and I would hope that everyone in the Democratic Party could agree, that the moneyed class has had enough say in our politics, and those with money should do the responsible thing and help those of us without. Either help political campaigns that you think are worthy political campaigns, progressive political campaigns. Either take your money and put meaningful political pressure on Nancy Pelosi. Uh, to get her to enact meaningful progressive changes instead of doing what she's been doing. Anything else but running for president, we don't need Mike Bloomberg doing it. We don't need Tom Steyer doing it. We don't need any of these people doing it. These people need to be sitting on the sidelines here and helping those of us who want to build a better country do that with their money. If they want to do donations, whatever. I'm not against that. If they want to run PACs or whatever supporting candidates, it's their money. This is America. We have a First Amendment. Right now, the First Amendment says that you can use your money in political ways. Okay, if they're doing it in a reasonable, laudable way, this is not my preferred system. I prefer publicly financed campaigns and like demand transparency and all that, but I also live in the real world. If Steyer wanted to do that, that'd be great, but here we are again at the end of one of these monologues with me saying, if he wanted to do that, that'd be great, but he's not doing that he's doing something really stupid so he shouldn't be running for president i don't know if you have anything to dogpile on that i i think i sucked up a lot of air there well i don't have much uh to to say as far as his presence and i'm really curious how his 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 media presence uh translates and and how he goes over especially after the howard schultz uh non-starter uh i i'm i i'm i really don't know what 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 I have to to add to it other than I'm I'm more curious. Uh, um, it says a uh, lot what, about the guy that his whole brand is built on impeachment, and I am someone who has been advocating the need to impeach Donald Trump and also members of this administration for a very long time. Um, DHS, I was calling for members of DHS to be impeached over the treatment of detainees, um, asylum seekers, those who are being detained pre-trial. Um, I was calling for impeachment on that last year with Kirsten. Nielsen when she was still the act, the actual secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And with all of that, I look at Tom Steyer and I don't know that I actually have an ally. I think this is a guy who's just grifting on impeachment. Yeah, I, this might just be a guy who sees, look, it's going to cost me this much money to quote unquote run for president. And in exchange for that, I'm going to get so many media opportunities to talk about impeaching Trump. Uh, and I, I really see that as his uh, his A game uh, and his B game. And uh, if he just so happens to catch any initial momentum, uh, I, I really think he would be uh, um, the dog catching the car there. Um, I, I don't think he uh, has any other intention other than to get impeachment talked about as often as possible. 
I don't even think he's serious about that. I wish he was serious about that because I'm really, really sick of getting on Twitter every day and seeing a whole bunch of people nominally on our side talking about how all of these things are outrageous and egregious and I'm inclined to agree with them, but like, let's talk about concentration tr- camp Twitter for a second here. If you believe earnestly that there are concentration camps on the border and you're someone who's been defending that rhetoric, I don't know how you say that with a straight face and the sentence doesn't end with, and we should be impeaching members of DHS. Like, that's the answer. If you believe that, that's the answer. If you believe that this Epstein stuff is really bad, then you need to be impeaching the Secretary of Labor, Alex Acosta. It's not just about politics. It's the actual accountability function. I mean, could you imagine the way Twitter would react if one day, I don't know, the prosecutor from New York decided that they weren't going to bring charges on Epstein because they wanted to wait until they had the strongest possible case on the guy? Can you imagine the dunks? And here we have Nancy fucking Pelosi doing that every single day. Speaking of Epstein, the, the, the parallel universe I kind of think of as far as impeachment or as far as um, uh, changing the conversation is what would President Clinton have done if Epstein had come up while she was president. Oh, God. Um, that's interesting. I think she probably would have had some other high-profile dismissal coming down the pike, maybe not of Alex Acosta, but of somebody, because clearly the Clintons were very cozy with Epstein as well. I, I would, mean, Would we have Epstein ever heard is, of this story? It, would it have gotten rid of the story? Would, yeah, well, I, I'm just saying, it, it seems like... It seems like something that would have gone away. Acosta would have been gone the first time back in November of last year. I think people forget that Acosta has been in hot water over the Epstein stuff within the last calendar year. And he managed to ride out the storm. And I draw everyone's attention back to the example of Governor Blackface. Remember him? That was this year. There was a very, very valuable lesson learned by the elites in that whole Ralph Northam incident. One, don't say you do the moonwalk to establish credibility with African-American voters. And two, if you just white-knuckle this shit, you can ride it out. And unless and until people move from grousing about shit and bitching about shit online to actually calling for and demanding real action and actually taking real action, this is going to be the new normal. You're going to see something horrible on your TV. It's going to make you upset. It might even bring you to tears, legitimate tears. And then you're going to get online and you're going to bitch about it. And you're not actually going to go out and do anything about it. And the awful shit's going to keep happening. And I know I sound deeply pessimistic right now. But I have just been staring at the gaping yaw of my Twitter feed. Of all these people wringing their hands from all different sections. Uh, the never Trumpers. The like Bernie alt-lefters. All, all of them. This is horrible. This is horrible. That is horrible. What the fuck are you going to do about it? Um, Because if you're not going to do anything about it, it continues. Justin Amash was on State of the Union with Jake Tapper this weekend. 
and just embarrassing the entire Democratic Party by spelling out in clear terms, without even really putting it on Pelosi's lap, that the entire Pelosi and Democratic Party position and even the impeachment's just not worth it or it's a distraction or we need to be talking about domestic issues position, it's all a load of bullshit. Because what you're saying when you say that is that everything that Donald Trump has done the the things that we've call, come to call concentration camps, the campaign finance abuses, the obstruction of justice, all of it, I, we can tack in Bush's war crimes. When you don't impeach on any of that, what you're saying is that's all fine and that you'd rather really just get back to talking about climate change or something. And you're not, I mean, you're upset about the concentration camps, but like not so upset that we should stop talking about climate change. But the concentration camps are bad, and it's, you know, worth bitching about on Twitter. It's not a real position. It's not. Uh, And I'm getting really revved up on this because it's just, I've been seeing this for days, and people need to be disabused of this. And the least of all, fucking Nancy Pelosi, or most of all Nancy Pelosi, she needs to be disabused of this because she's leading this entire party into a fool's direction. Going back to Sean Frieder and Sean Frieder's continuing being right about this whole people as heuristics being the guiding force in our politics right now, I really look at the leadership of Nancy Pelosi uh, at the center of the party on the establishment wing and Bernie Sanders on kind of the left wing, and I go, what the fuck are you guys doing? Get your head out of your asses, because Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are running circles around you. They've at least got their fingers somewhere hovering around the pulse. And these other two just sort of a Assume that if you sit on the sidelines and you call Trump a liar, he'll 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 self-impeach himself. You know, I mean, we just need to call him a pathological liar, and, and that that'll do it. We'll, we'll win in 2020. No, we won't. Yeah, I I think they are so committed to the idea that if the only thing they accomplish is um is bringing up impeachment hearings and. Because they know that the public doesn't see impeachment as the same thing as Trump going to prison. Uh, right, and, right. And, and, and they sort of go, if it's not a deus ex machina that reverses the entire Trump presidency, then the, my voters wouldn't want that. No, right. we do. Uh, Pelosi said today she wasn't going to impeach Acosta. Right, and, and I'm, I, don't, I don't agree with that strategy at all, as, as you know. But... I think that's where their head is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. I, yeah. I'm not. I'm not laying that on you. I'm just. It, it, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. stunning to but, me. But do you, I, and do and you that, agree, that people Chris? aren't seeing the downside. Do, do you agree, Chris, that that's where their head is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. No. I. I think that there is. I. I understand the counter arguments against impeachment. Um. In, in really sort of like I'm going to try to present them in not straw man forms. Um. The counter arguments are, we believe the pol- politics are bad. Um, I've discussed at great length with Sean Frieder on the show why I don't agree with that structure, but I understand that argument. Um, I, I mean, I think, honestly, the best pillar to that argument is, well, look at how shitty of a job Nancy Pelosi is doing and has done. Do you really think she'll do any better when she goes to impeach Donald Trump? And that is a hell of a compelling argument. I'll give you that, although that's not usually the construction of the argument I get. Right. Um, and, and the other one is that... <laughs> That this won't actually remove Trump from office, so it's not worth it. And I am, I guess, too principled 
to ever buy into sort of this crass politics argument of, no, the Constitution's worth fighting for, and, and if you lose... If you lose, you lose. Um, These people at the border are worth fighting for. And if you lose because there are people who want to stand up and be counted and say, no, the detention facilities down at the border are great. Okay, we'll see what happens. But I have a hunch that when you go and you demand that the, the side of the wrong stands and be counted, that they'll behave not unlike those attorneys today in court um, involving the census question who said that they're not going to defend Barr and the government's position on the census question because they know that the government's full of shit on this, which is a big move. But I think you can actually force them into the corner if you're strong. And when we go back to my strong and authentic axis... Does Nancy Pelosi look strong right now or authentic? Do, do I really believe that Nancy Pelosi is such a horrible human being that she looks at all this child molestation stuff with Jeffrey Epstein and goes, oh, you know, he's just not worth it? Maybe. But, but I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say, no, I, I don't think she's that bad of a person. I think she's fucking weak. And I think that's just as damnable. Yeah, I I don't know if that's just the nature of being the speaker at a time like this. Um I've I've tried to It's her nature as the speaker in a time like this. Yeah, sir. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know there are there there are different modes that I, I I'm really going to plead ignorant to, but uh um Oh, you know, there's one more affirmative case for impeachment, too. Uh, This is the more kind of lefty progressive case. And and that is, if we stop talking about impeachment and Russia, all this Russia stuff, then we could finally get to the business of passing really good bills through Congress for Trump to sign. Oh, well, and you know that my understanding of it and that we've talked about in a previous episode. Again, uh, also uh, not Brian's position, to make that entirely clear. (laughs) Not ascribing that to Brian. No, uh, that uh, Trump impeachment Trump impeachment hearings is a foreign policy insurance policy. Um, I, I I want Iran to know that we are impeaching him, uh, among other people, or among other uh, uh, countries. Yeah, no, I I have affirmative cases for all of this stuff, or sort of negating arguments for the idea that like anything could get done. I mean, I'll, I'll point to how is AOC and Ted Cruz's dating going? That working out good? Well, um, you know, Chris, I, I got out of the dating game a long time ago. Uh, I, I know it's a very confusing world. I guess Dude, it she was swiped all, it was... left on a mosh and right on Ted Cruz. I don't know what's wrong with her. Yeah, well, um, I, I don't know how I don't know how this is going to go for her. I know that it can only go good for him. And, uh, you know, I think you and I have been talking recently about getting into, um, uh, getting into problems where the, the, the best case scenario is you just get back to zero. And, uh, this seems like one of those, uh, cases, don't you think? Oh yeah, no, I feel like AOC has to play this to a draw and hope that Ted Cruz doesn't find some way to stick the knife in her. I don't know why she would ever think that there isn't a screw coming at some point from Ted Cruz. Like, why wouldn't he go for that? Um, Because he's a good guy who really just wants to get shit done? Is that the Ted Cruz we know? Is is this some sort of, I know Ted Cruz hates Trump, so I think... But uh, he doesn't! Yeah, well, I, I, I'm just trying to get in, 
into even a wrong-headed uh, uh, interpretation of why you saddle up with him. And I don't think she's been sufficiently mean to Ted Cruz yet to get his undying loyalty. I think she's going to have to accuse his father of killing JFK first. <laughs> and then maybe, just maybe, Ted Cruz might bend to her will. He might change parties if she does that. Oh, let's say on AOC real quick here. Um, AOC, so... I'm tuning up the band, Brian, because I think there's a real decent chance in this next election cycle I'm going to be giving AOC a campaign donation, which will probably come as a shock to a lot of listeners. So <laughs> let me explain this right now. Um, does AOC still drive me crazy with her tactics, uh, this Ted Cruz thing, as we just discussed? Yeah. Does she drive me crazy with her framing and phraseology on things? Yes, I think about, I don't know, putting a ratio on it. 45% of the stuff she says, I'd rather she hadn't or said it in a completely different way. Now, that being said, I live in the real world. And that means that there are two axes of power in the Democratic Party right now, not infinity. There aren't 22 different axes of power in the Democratic Party right now. And Bernie Sanders is not really interested in the congressional level. So at the congressional level, we have Nancy Pelosi and on the opposition side, the strongest oppositional figure who actually seems to have a fucking spine is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Say what you will about her and her style. Don't love it. It's authentically hers, and she's strong. And given the choice in leadership at this crossroads between AOC and Nancy Pelosi, to me, it's a no contest. And if things continue to go the way it looks like they're going between AOC and the Democratic Party establishment, I will be supporting AOC um, to get her reelected so that she can keep up her fight against the Democratic Party establishment because... There isn't a magic wand with the presidency. It doesn't matter if it's Bernie or Warren. I don't care which one you think is a stronger candidate. It doesn't matter. Perfect McDemocrat. It doesn't matter if it's them, if we have Pelosi at the helm in congressional leadership. I think she's made it abundantly clear that as long as she's the speaker, nothing is going to change. So it almost doesn't matter who's the nominee, and it doesn't matter if that nominee becomes president. We have to make Nancy Pelosi a thing of the past going to in order to go forward you know i i am often frustrated with what people focus on and how so much of it is the presidency but this is one of those positions where if you have uh, a a progressive minded political agenda uh you you have to value nancy pelosi irrespective of how the media uh um uh offers you the the presidential campaign you have to view uh, oh the speakership's uh, almost more important than yeah. the presidency in many ways and, and one thing i want to remind everyone just to put it out in the ether here you don't actually have to be a member of the house to be the speaker that that is not in the constitution no, so but you do have to beat pelosi you do have to beat Pelosi, and that's important. Now, let's say, let's suppose you were a billionaire, a 62-year-old billionaire who thought impeachment was really valuable and worth doing, and you had $100 million that you were just dying to spend in politics. Um, might I suggest helping defeat this feckless do-nothing speaker, please? Oh, God. Th- please. This is, this is where the, you know... Um 
my, how much did Michael Bloomberg commit recently to climate change efforts? Um, uh, a decent I, amount. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, yeah, look, millions and millions. I, I mean, he's he's for real on that too. I I don't, I don't like Bloomberg, but it, like there are a lot of these billionaires who are really serious about pollution stuff and look if they want to give us their money of their own volition and we don't have to claw it from them i yeah. think that's preferable no he if he if he really wanted to uh get the most out of that money it would have gone to change about 15 to 20 house seats yeah and, and leadership and, um yeah. d- d- staying on that did you see any of justin amash's town halls since he declared that he was in favor of impeachment and since he's become independent. No, tell me about him. So I recommend this to all the listeners. When you get done, look these up because, and Brian, you definitely need to go and check these out because Amash talks about the mechanics of the speakership position um, from both his time under Speaker Ryan and under Speaker Pelosi and how much down-ballot control and party control the Speaker's position has. You need to be more concerned about the process in Congress. It's never talked about. It's the most important thing that's never talked about. The process makes all the difference. And right now, you have a system where the Speaker of the House controls the entire process. That was true under Republicans, and it's true under Democrats. Under Paul Ryan, for example, we had for the first time in Congress's history an entire term where we weren't allowed to amend any legislation on the House floor. So for those of you who say things like, Justin, can you offer some amendments to to make this change or that change? No amendments were allowed the entire Congress. And so far, under uh, Speaker Pelosi, the, the same thing is happening. No amendments have been allowed on the House floor. Things are brought up under what's called a closed rule or a structured rule. Closed rule means no amendments at all. Structured rule means you can offer amendments not on the House floor. You have to send them to a committee called the Rules Committee. So you submit those amendments. And then the Speaker of the House decides whether to allow those amendments to be voted on. And the Speaker of the House will not allow your amendment to be voted on if it has a chance of passing and does anything. So the only amendments that will get a vote are the ones that have no chance of passing. The, the speaker thinks they don't really have any shot. Nobody's going to support this one. Or amendments that don't do anything. So an amendment that's just a messaging amendment. Those will get a vote on the House floor. The speaker will say, yeah, send it to the Rules Committee, bring it to the floor. Um, but for us to be able to offer an amendment on the House floor, that can't be done. Now, the House doesn't normally work this way. At the beginning of each term, we uh, adopt something called the rules of the house, the rules package. And these rules go back to the uh, time of our founding, basically. They go back to the beginning of Congress. And each year, they get, or each two year, every two years, they get readopted and they get amended a little bit. And the rules are actually um, pretty open. In other words, they give individual members of Congress a lot of power. But every single week since I've been there, every single week, we have waived or suspended the rules. So we have never followed the rules of the House of Representatives. It has never happened at any time I've been there. Now, you might ask, why do members of Congress waive or suspend the rules? Because we have to vote on that to waive them or suspend them. Because the members of Congress are told, if you don't do it, you'll get kicked off your committees. You won't get chairmanship. If you have a campaign, we won't support you. And we might actually fund one of your opponents. So every single week, members of the majority, whether it's the Republican majority under Paul Ryan or the Democratic majority under Nancy Pelosi, every single week, the members of the majority vote to violate the rules of the House. They say the rules of the House will not be followed every single week. And when you think about it, uh, it's obvious why that happens. 
the speaker has so much, it's like, it's like a, a never-ending cycle, right? The speaker has so much power, and because she or he has so much power, it creates more power. The speaker can raise more money than all the members of Congress in that party combined. So it has, the speaker has a tremendous amount of influence and can control the whole process. So if you go against the Speaker of the House and you're in the majority party, you're toast. And that's why people don't do it, and that's why we keep going through this cycle. And until people at home understand that and start caring about that, things will not change. The more I decipher how the flow of power um, goes uh, through Congress and how the executive branches is associated with it, the more I look into it, the less interested I am in Bernie versus Warren. Uh, or um, It's such a stupid debate. It's such a waste of air. It's, it's as dumb as the blue no matter who purity vows or anti-purity vows. I'm going to take a principle and stand on this or that because I want to make sure I get my M4A. If you want to get M4A, and, and believe me, I, I think I've said this only infinity times on this show, I want Medicare for all. It sort of only matters somewhat who the presidential nominee is. Obviously, if we have a squish on that, it's no good. So Kamala Harris, not on my list. But, you know, if you don't have the actual clout in Congress, it's not going to do you any good. And also, conversely, if Congress has a serious push and you have a bulldog for a speaker, they can drag kind of a squishy president across the finish line. Yeah, and uh, Chris, I want to ask you... Uh, a question here: If if you see a congressional candidate, and in their uh, in in a tweet that someone has retweeted to you, right? It's in your feed. If you see the words uh, climate change, Green New Deal, and Medicare for all, what presidential candidate do you already associate with that person? Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> Tulsi no, wait, well, I've been told she's good. No, is she not good on Medicare for All or Green New Deal or, huh? Okay, uh, um, probably Bernie Sanders. Exactly. Man, it was Warren. The, the, yeah, I mean, the, the, interchangeably, but there, yeah, Bernie would be the main brand, yeah. There's almost a direct connection to Bernie Sanders, and what I want to point out is that Bernie Sanders is a very intense individual, and he needs someone to share the stage with at all t- in, 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 in any chance uh, possible, just so people don't burn out on him. And I'm saying intense in, in, in kind of a neutral way here. Uh, intense in the same way that Trump is intense and that people burn out on him. Um, but uh, uh, what I'm getting at is if, if, if the presidential campaigns lean on allowing the congressional campaigns to speak for them, these congressional campaigns will, will gain traction. And their, their, their message is is um, it's just it's showing you how pervasive and, and how uh, widespread the Bernie Sanders crowd is. And there's there's one message that Bernie Sanders can give that no other candidate can give. And that message is that look at all of these people who are now running for Congress who ran because they were inspired by me four years ago. The morning consult poll that came out today um, had a lot of interesting surprises to me for the Sanders candidacy. For one, and this is definitively good news, he did better among black voters 
than I think a lot of people would have expected. And obviously the conventional wisdom narrative is that Bernie does not do very good with black voters, but black voters had an improved opinion of him. It was very, very slight, but slight improved rather than slight diminished, which is good. Um, Certainly tracks well compared to Biden, who is of similar age, um, similar generations. So Bernie improves. That's a good thing. But then later on in the morning console poll, they go to the Bernie supporters, who's your second choice? And I think that this is a real wake-up call for a lot of online Bernie supporters. And 31% said Joe Biden was the second choice, compared to 23% who said Liz Warren. Now, unless you've convinced yourself that Liz Warren is on the far right of this party, even further right than Joe Biden then I guess it would make sense. But I think for a lot of people, trying to reckon with the idea that Bernie Sanders might actually have a decent chunk of support right now because people don't actually know the rest of this field all that well, I think that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, I think there is a a predominant... There's a general understanding in at least the the Twitter um, Bernie... Conversation, the 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 the, the Bernie narratives. Uh, the, there's a general understanding that if Bernie is to get ousted, um, there might be some people who will go to Warren. Um, but other than that, everyone's going to go further left with their vote. And what that, they perceive uh, to be further yeah. left. So, because we need yeah. to talk about Tulsi right. and Gravel here in a second, because sure, sure, sure. yeah, but, but no, um, but, yeah, but if there's you, one Bernie, thing, if, Bernie, then Biden, Twitter, does that exist? No, no, that narr- that 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 uh, if if Bernie gets cheated, I'm going to Biden. That there is no conversation for that. Completely um, and, unrepresented on Twitter, but 31 percent in the morning consult poll. I, I I don't know what to think of that. I mean, it's it's just clearly a disparity. I, yeah. I think that part of that's generational. So you have a lot of people who are older Bernie supporters, and I, I'm just going to posit that. Actually, I can account for some of this. I was reading a Daily Beast article uh, about Warren's support and how Warren's drawing in different people. And one of the people that um, Warren was getting in New Hampshire was a person who was a Sanders guy. Um, and this guy was like, I supported Sanders because I was against Clinton. So it wasn't necessarily so much they had been sitting around and ruminating on Marx versus Hegel and coming to some grand conclusion that the real problem with America is that we fancy ourselves a Hegelian nation, but we haven't really come to true terms with Marxism and how we need to embrace Marx's destiny or debate about post-Hegelianism. It was literally just, I don't like the Clintons. And last time around, there was the banjo dude and the socialist and Hillary Clinton. And the socialist was actually saying some stuff that sounded like shit that the Democratic Party should be saying. And people got on board. Also, people like Medicare for All. And they like the public option. And they wanted real change. People were really open to that. So that's where Bernie was able to get his initial support from. The real question to me was always going to be, how is he going to grow out the base when kind of the base for him, is so far to the left. Because what you need to do is, I mean, I'm not even saying grab the middle and court the vote hostagers out there in Never Trump land, but you need to be able to, you know, shimmy-sham to the center of the party. And 
if you make yourself too anti-insurgent, too anti-establishment, if your supporters position themselves as the one true liberal or the one true lefty and all of you are really Republicans in Democrats' clothing, um, that's not actually a real way to cobble together a meaningful coalition unless you have a deeply polarizing establishmentarian figure um, who has a lot of suction like Hillary Clinton. And this time around, that oppositional figure doesn't exist for a Sanders candidacy, which I think is part of the reason why this hasn't just, you know, gone right down the hill, I think, like some might have expected. Yeah, I'm curious when the field narrows down. He really needs Liz Warren's candidacy to get screwed over. And for the people who are Warren supporters like myself to go, okay, I have some real reservations about Sanders. I don't know that he's a leader of the party, and I don't necessarily love all of the people I'm going to be in league with here, but fuck the establishment. I'm with Sanders. And right now I don't see that narrative playing out. Yeah, I, I don't either. Uh and but it it just makes it more confusing now with with the Biden uh, piece in it. Um, but it, it I, I I'm curious how Sanders is going to match up depending on who else is left in the field and how those. Um, how do you how, think he's going to go after Kamala? I saw a real issue in that first debate of Sanders throwing jabs, and how is he going to do that when it's not Joe Biden? Let's talk about uh, Sanders' um, positive poll numbers with um, the African-American community and how do you take those positive poll numbers, attack Kamala, Kamala loses, and then those people go to Sanders? Um, uh, I, I don't yeah, know. I know. That's that's a um, risky proposition. I mean, Sanders really needs to let the Kamala attack come to him and have a keto ready for that. Right. And, and I, I'm not saying that um, these voters are going to just look at the loss as uh, cheating someone who is uh, um, an African-American and, and, and uh they, they uh, that these voters don't know how to uh, analyze this, but um, just d- demographics of all sorts are known as um, you know in making uh, uh, interpretations uh, unilaterally, I guess, and and it's it's going to be interesting where her delegates go as well. Um, like uh, uh, I don't I. It's an open debate right now if she'd toss him to Sanders or Harris. And this is, again, where I think Sanders and his campaign and his online constituency sometimes does themselves no favors. You want to be in a position. Right now, I'm like looking at the Emerson poll. Like Biden sitting at what appears to be his ceiling of 30%. And I don't think he's going to get over that. So I don't know when the dam breaks on Biden, but the dam is going to break on Biden at some point. And I have concerns that when Biden drops out, he's going to endorse Harris. Yeah. I. He is going to, yes, try to save face and endorse Harris And that's going to move support to Harris. And that's important because right now between Harris, Sanders, and Warren, it's 15, 15, and 15. Buttigieg um, has dropped out of that top tier um, pretty definitively here over the last week. Like the 
the debates were not helpful for him. No, um, no. No. Like, like, so he's back down into the single digits here. Sanders has dropped down. Um, so it was, that's why I was kind of surprised a little bit from the data here. Sanders is in, in the teens and he's like head to head with Warren. And I, I mean, you can, you can feel this online too. There's overlap. I mean, I have friends who are in Camp Sanders and friends who are in Camp Warren and things are a little bit testy between all of us right now. Um, and that's about 30% of the party. And then we've got this Kamala thing here. And I'm really worried that Bernie is pushing Liz in the direction of if Liz drops out, she endorses Kamala, which would be like a disaster and I so totally don't want. Um, I would rather Liz endorse Sanders and then Sanders lose to Harris than Liz drop out and endorse Harris. Well, and, and you know what? Here's here's one aspect that I, I, I wonder how, how evenly... Uh, this would get split up. Um, if if Warren goes out and says support Sanders, how many of her voters actually do that? And vice versa. If Sanders drops she out, she could also and says not endorse. Warren, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the thing is Warren could drop out and not endorse. Whereas I think yeah. Biden and Harris are much more likely to drop out and endorse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it, I I don't think it's even. I think if Warren drops out, her most of her voters will rally behind Sanders if he's still in. But I think if Sanders drops out and says support Warren, I don't think as many of his voters will will follow his advice. Um, and no, and, no, yeah. I, 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 well, I don't know. You know, I, I think. Look, there is the online crowd that have convinced themselves that Tulsi and Gravel are more to their standards than Elizabeth Warren. Um, so, like, let's just move in and debunk that right quick, shall we? Um, so. Tulsi Gabbard is a really unserious candidate, guys, um, and her supporters are really unserious. Why do I say that? That's a pretty strong charge. It sounds like just like an attack. Um, because I've been watching a bunch of their YouTube videos. I've gone into Tulsi Twitter. I, I've gone into this in depth. And they currently believe, they currently believe that NBC has decided that they need to subvert Gabbard's very strong, very well-articulated, very smart iteration of an anti-war message. Now, if you're unfamiliar, Pimplegate has to do with the first Democratic debate that happened last week. And something very unusual happened when Tulsi Gabbard was on camera. Something appeared on the screen and... It's really hard to explain why. No, you're hearing correctly. There's a theory held by a non-negligible amount of Tulsi Gabbard supporters that NBC, as part of their continuing efforts to aid and support the war machine, digitally placed a blemish on Tulsi Gabbard's chin. Now, why would they do that? I'll summarize it real quickly for you, and then we'll go back to him for a few more seconds. They would do that because Tulsi Gabbard has a very strong anti-war message that if she was allowed to get out to the American people, would find connect with the American people. And so NBC realized the way you silence this beautiful warrior of peace and love is to put a blemish on her chin as such to discredit her because though the American people are actually quite savvy and ready to absorb this anti-war message, they will never hear it from a woman with a blemish on her skin. Yeah, it's a hell of a bank shot. I'm going to show you this in just a second here. But as she was speaking about Iran, in about the 51st minute 
of the debate, there was a red dot that looked like a pimple on her chin. But what was really interesting about this is it moved while she moved as if it were face tracked like a Snapchat filter. And, and, you know, Gabbard on war stuff, right? So she claims to be anti-war, but what she's really against is the U.S. using military for humanitarian interventions. So that includes something like Syria, um, but her whole position is essentially the U.S. just needs to step out of world affairs. So a lot of people are lefties. Um, a lot of people feel very strongly in the left about Palestine, right? Israel-Palestine, big talking point on the left here. The Gabbard position of Palestine time would be to step back and let Israel do what they need to do. Tulsi Gabbard was upset at Barack Obama because Barack Obama wouldn't use the phrase radical Islamic extremism when he was talking about the global terrorism problem. Obama and the Obama administration was very careful to avoid invoking Islam, not unlike, to a certain extent, various points they were less good at this. The Bush administration were very mindful to make this not a war of the West versus the rest um, and the West versus Islam, making it clear that this is about behavior and actions, Gabbard was against that. Gabbard has had problematic relationships with political parties in India that are strongly anti-Islamic. Real question how there she would be for the Palestinians. Um, Then we can talk a little bit more about Gabbard's record on Medicare for All, right? Now, Brian, you remember the debates, right? You remember when Tulsi Gabbard raised her hand because she was in favor of ending all private insurance to pursue Medicare for all? Uh. You don't, because that didn't happen, but apparently for a lot of people on the internet, that totally did. Or the fact that that didn't occur is just something, don't need to worry about that one. Why would we need to be concerned about that? And then we can talk about her views on religion. And I think some people are like, oh, you're going to bring up the Hare Krishna stuff in the Science of Identity Foundation and Chris Butler. Yeah, I am. You're one step ahead of me. But why am I bringing it up? I'm bringing it up because our position on the left of center, just like generally, is that religious fundamentalists of any type are kind of anathema to our brand of politics with progressivism and even leftism that whole church and state being separated thing that the constitution came up with we generally like that we think that that's a good thing that's not really a Gabbard thing. Gabbard's someone who really deeply believes in her faith, and her faith, the Science of Identity Foundation, has been deeply involved in Hawaii state politics for multiple generations of the Gabbard family. Not just Tulsi, but Mike Gabbard. Her dad is involved in the Science of Identity Foundation, and members of the Science of Identity Foundation are on her staff, including as her deputy campaign manager. So Tulsi Gabbard is also a religious fundamentalist. And now, if if there was someone who was squishy on human rights not in favor of Medicare for All, and a religious fundamentalist, and they were named Elizabeth Warren. How would the left feel about that person? Oh. uh, She'd be nuclear, right? We would never hear the end of it. (laughs) And yet there's a go-pass for Tulsi Gabbard. Okay. Okay. Now, what if I told you Elizabeth Warren was a 9-11 truther? Right? Like, that'd be crazy, right? It's hard to get elected still. Right? And what if I told you that Elizabeth Warren used to go on Alex Jones' show with some regularity and and, and viewed Alex Jones as like a credible source of news media? 
What if I told you that (laughs) Elizabeth Warren supported a political action committee run by a guy who believes that Barack Obama and all of the U.S. leaders are part of a conspiracy involving the British Crown's secret control of America? Because that's Mike Gravel. That's who Mike Gravel is. So I guess if that's leftism, I guess if all of that is leftism, I don't get leftism. But my suspicion is that there are a lot of people on the internet who have their head up their fucking asses and don't actually understand their own politics very well. And I don't have a better or nicer way of putting it because these swings and misses are sort of inexcusable. It's either willful ignorance, as in you knew about all these things and for reasons that I I can't glean, you're knowingly not disclosing this stuff to your Twitter audience and your Twitter followers and the people you do podcasts and vodcasts for. Or you didn't do any of your homework on it. But all I'm saying is if if you're following these voices, these voices are not your friend. They're leading you astray, either through ignorance or through knowing deception. Yeah, um, I've done my best to to see anyone to the left of the Overton window as as my ally. Um, But... It's not necessarily clear to me that they're on the left. I'm really kind of rejecting that framing now. The one thing I always consider with any candidate is what would Roger Stone do with you if if they are building a case against you? And um, there may be people, uh, there, there may be representatives of Tulsi Gabbard who can defend her on Twitter when people um, uh, confront Gabbard's, uh, um, in, you know, incongruencies. Whenever, whenever she's confronted, there is always an excuse. But um, these people um, have never had any experience defending themselves against the likes of Roger Stone. Um, and they I'm, think all politics is just going up against the Democratic Party. And, yeah, the Democrats are a bunch of wimps. We've established that. But that's not who you're up against with the Republicans. They play hardball. They don't just acquiesce like Pelosi and the establishment. Right. And and this, uh, I I almost want to divorce myself from making any sort of, of judgment on the Science of Identity Foundation because it's not necessary. The way that I that's judge why I it, stacked it like way last. Yeah, yeah, it, the, that's the, really not right. the reasons why she's not a leftist. That's just yet another problematic right. part of her thing. But Chris, is the Science of Identity Foundation something that Roger Stone would just twist and turn it to his will, uh, and just would he just salivate over a detail like that? Well, golly gee, Brian, let me tell you about a fellow named Jeremiah Wright. Yeah, of course. It's sort of delusional or just the mark of a political dilettante to think that it would go any other way but that, particularly in the era of Trump. Um, I've got one more rant that I need to get off my chest in this hour-long vent session here, And, and that is like our side's obsession with the hypocrisy dunk. We... Left to center, all of us, right, whether you're progressive, leftist, I mean, this is, this is something across the party. The Democratic establishment loves this, too. Our comedians love this. We think hypocrisy 
is such a killer argument that if we can show someone was in favor of this once and is now no longer in favor of that, that that will prove them to be a squish and this will be appreciated by the independent voter who will perceive this as as weakness and, and go, oh, there's intellectual inconsistency here. I Well, I never. I, I expect integrity and linear straightforwardness. Um, and, and I think what that fundamentally misunderstands is the lesson of John Kerry in 2004. So when John Kerry was running for president, one of the things that he was running on was his record in Vietnam and that he was someone who was strongly anti-war, that he went over and served in Vietnam, got a Purple Heart, came back and was like, this war is bullshit. We shouldn't be doing this. He was one of the good patricians who was very against the Vietnam War and He was running against Bush during the Iraq war. Well, John Kerry voted in favor of the $87 billion defense authorization bill for the Iraq and Afghan wars initially. And then when he became the nominee for the Democratic Party, he said that he was against the war in Iraq. And so the label on him was that he was for it before he was against it. And the Republicans under Karl Rove labeled John Kerry a flip-flopper. And then the next layer of this was that they went after his service record and said that he was not the serviceman that he claimed to be, that his record was a little bit stolen valor. And they created this group called Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, actually run by a man named Jerome Corsi, who showed up during the Mueller report and Mueller investigation, was actually looking like he might be facing some indictments, managed to get out of it, but Roger Stone was not able to get out of it, and it looks like Corsi might have thrown Stone underneath the bus. So all of that is to say that between the charge of being a flip-flopper and this charge of misrepresenting his military record, John Kerry was not able to defeat George Bush, and it was a very, very close election. This is to say that the Swipo campaign and these things hadn't happened. There's a decent chance that Kerry could have eked it out. Uh, He barely lost in Ohio. So the lesson that a lot of Democrats learned was the smear that the Republicans put on John Kerry, that he was a flip-flopper, um, that he changed his call, and that was the problem for him. And my response to that is, no, the reason flip-flopper worked is not because of flip-flopper, it's because it got to weakness. It started to spell out a weakness campaign for John Kerry, and that's what Swift Boat was all about. It wasn't about the lie. It was about making John Kerry look weak and making him look inauthentic. And through making John Kerry look weak and inauthentic, I would argue it was just a cleanup job by the time they got to the debates because they were able to break through Kerry's kind of practiced veneer and paint that as an inauthentic, bullshitty veneer and Bush could shimmy shimmy and feel authentic (laughs) and relatable. Yeah, and he was. I think that's the big takeaway, and we still live with this post-mortem of, oh, man, well, it was that he flip-flopped, and, and you can't ever change your position. No, you can change your position. Of course you could change your position. Bernie Sanders has changed his position on immigration. Bernie Sanders has changed his position on guns. Bernie Sanders has changed his position on several things. No, I, but I, he I... remains strong. Liz Warren has changed her position on several things. Remains strong 
strong. Um, it's how you present, and is it always tethered to reality? That's the other big thing our side needs to be disabused of. It doesn't always necessarily matter if it's true. Look at the occupant of the White House. Yeah, and I, I still like our uh, the, 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 the point on Kamala Harris and how she was able to uh, cash in on uh, slamming on, on Joe Biden on, on, on busing. And the then, Medicare for know, All flip-flop is a stroke of genius, dude. Oh, I yeah. wish I had come up with that kind of political strategy. No, it's brilliant. It is really smart to go up there and lie, say you're in favor of Medicare for All, and then change your position the next day because odds are a majority of the audience didn't realize you even lied. They heard exactly what they wanted to hear. Absolutely. And and what it also does um, that, that a lot of people take for granted is that it steals Bernie Sanders' chance to be the one person up there with his hand mm-hmm. up in the air, mm-hmm. uh, and and that moment was squandered, and and that he never got a foothold throughout the rest of that debate. No, um, and uh, there are these sorts of exchanges that people want to see it as fair and unfair, and uh, this is like this there's goes, a referee to yeah, this well, shit. And, and Chris, this goes back to our Ben Shapiro facts don't care about your feelings. Um, here's where feelings do matter because uh, in the, those Kamala Harris moments in the debates, people gelled around her there. Feelings don't care about facts is yeah, the that, other part of that true. proviso. That's true. Yeah. Feelings when don't you care feel a facts. certain way about a thing, once you're gelled, you a you're person, gelled. Once yeah, you're gelled, exactly. you're gelled. And, and, and she can come out and, and retract her statement and have a flip-flopping moment. And you don't ungel. You're already there. Yeah, I, my Kamala people, uh, and I, I've got some Kamala people. I talk with them. We don't agree on much. Um, but I get where they're coming from on this. They basically go, yeah, I know she is what she is on Medicare for All, but I think I've got a bulldog. And I think that she can fight and that she knows how to win and can win against Trump. And is Essentially, they look at the flip-flopping and go, oh, great. That means that she can play his game. I go, I don't know that I want to go there, but, but I get it. I at least get the argument. Yeah. In, in my opinion, she is the choice for the voter who um, is uh, above the Biden lure of, of the, of, oh, he's got experience as the vice president. You, you at least have the wherewithal to know that that really doesn't buy you what a lot of uh, simple minded voters think it buys people uh, but you also believe that this is a we have to beat someone who uh, uh, can beat Trump first and uh, everything else is secondary and there is a lot of fear uh, in the in the in the Kamala Harris group because she is going at, she is you know building up her campaign around her ability to beat Trump first and foremost in the same way that Biden is first thing she's gonna do is president. Beat Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. uh, she's not. Oh, quite that's there. a great line. That one's going to come up a bunch during the campaign. <laughs> All right, I said we were going to do forty-five minutes. We did seventy-five minutes. Big old vent session. I knew that was coming. All right, so now's the part of the show where I make the announcement that I made on the lost episode, but we'll make it here. Don't worry about the government. Is looking for more voices to come on the show. 
I obviously am perfectly happy doing the monologue shows from time to time here with certain formats like the Mueller shows. I'm still going to be doing those monologically. But I love having people on here, especially as we're in the campaign season. The Democratic Party's got way more than just two views in it. Um, not just Brian and mine, but like the establishmentarian view and the like left view or even the progressive view. There's like a bunch of different camps. There's 22 different candidates. I would love to hear from people who have been listening to the show, following the race fairly closely, hear your thoughts on this when we're doing horse race episodes. So if that sounds like something you're interested in doing, here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that you have a halfway decent mic. What do I mean by a halfway decent mic? I'm holding in my hand an Audio-Technica 2020. Uh, Actually, I'm holding a 2020 Plus right now. This is my backup microphone. It's not the greatest microphone in the world. I use a CAD M179 for those of you interested, and I run into an Aero preamp. That's like a $650 rig. Don't go and buy that. Buy yourself an Audio-Technica 2020. It's between 100 to 130 pounds. Um, Might be a little bit more. Price it out. Check it out on eBay. I'm looking for audio quality at or about that level. Um, I'm happy with some people to be cleaning up audio, but cleaning up audio is a real pain in my ass, and especially if we have multiple people on, if we're going to do a multi-person episode, I want to have good audio so that I'm not doing all this post-production sweetening. So if that sounds like you and you're interested, I'm on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. If you want to come on for a specific topic, if you say, Hey, Chris, you said this. I would love to put the screws to you, take you to task, respectfully disagree, whichever one you want about this subject. Love to have you on. Absolutely. Like, uh, the open forum... You're not going to get ambushed. Um, just don't be bullshit, and we won't be bullshit. Uh, my proviso is, I'll be cool if you're cool. Everything's going to be cool if everybody's cool. Everything's cool if everybody's cool. So, let's do that. Patreon.com slash DWATG and PayPal.me slash PayDWATG are the ways you support this show. This show is 100% listener-supported. All the editing, all the coverage... All of it, all of the great ideas, um, that is all financed by the charitable giving of people. Had some hits on the Patreon, um, and also had some hits on the PayPal here in the last couple of weeks. Love that. Um, you know, uh, if you've sent the money in, don't keep sending money in. You've sent your money in. Um, but but if you haven't signed up today, buck a show is all I'm asking. One dollar a show. It's literally the least amount that Patreon allows me to charge people. I was even flirting with 50 cents a show, which people said was ridiculous. I'm too low, but I'd rather just have people actually putting, you know, chipping in. And I want to make it painless to chip in, ideally. Um, And I hope a Bucker show is basically painless. And and, and if a Bucker show is not painless for you, um, then I hope, I seriously mean this. I hope that you get to a financial place where you can afford to give that because I've been there before. And it sucks to have not a nickel to give for charity, even when you want to give to a good charity. Um, and I'm a charity giver, so uh, I, I, know, I know that pain. Um, that struggle is real. Brian, where can people find you on the internet? Find me at Safe Politics. And from at Safe Politics, you can also uh, find me uh, uh, on my other uh, site at Postman Retweets. I want to thank you all so much for listening. I want to thank you all for supporting the show. Don't Worry About the Government is a listener-supported, ostensibly weekly podcast. Until the next one, bye-bye.